I just thought it would be funny. <laughs> and I just know over there they're going, was that Maud? Was that the theme from Maud? And then there's Maud. You don't even know what I'm talking about. Oh, well, sorry. I'm old. Huh? B. Arthur, look at you. Who said that? Chad, look at you. Chad Becker is a huge B. Arthur fan. Uh, I've, lo- <laughs> I've long known that. You have that B. Arthur room in your house, like, like, the, like David Gould. <laughs> uh, all right, open your Bibles, please, to Hebrews chapter 6. Hebrews chapter 6, and we pick up our study in uh, verse 7. We're going to fold in verse 7. Um, chapter 6, verse 7, this is God's word. For land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles... It is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do, and we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. And let's pray one more time. Father, may the truth be spoken and received here today. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, uh, when I grew up in uh, the uh, northwest suburbs of Chicago, uh, my parents still live in the same house I grew up in. And uh, uh, across the street and one over was this lady named Betty Caverly. And Betty Caverly had the most meticulous lawn you'd ever seen in your whole life. She was just out there, like, literally with scissors at points, uh, meticulously caring for her lawn. And so she, she really loved to do that, but she also observed the neighbors. And uh, neighbors felt pressure uh, to keep their lawns looking good because of better, Betty Caverly. And... Uh, so my parents, uh, in front of our house, there was, there was a bush, 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 bush. And in between the bushes, my parents every year would plant red geraniums every year. In between the bushes, there were red geraniums. And one year, I don't know where my father got these things, but he came home with a bunch of fake red geraniums in the middle of winter when the snow was this high. And it was all a plot to annoy Betty Caverly. And... Uh, he went out there and put them out there in the snow, and they just looked hilarious out there, you know? And uh, sure enough, they were just waiting and waiting and waiting, and uh, Betty Caverly and her galoshes uh, made her way into our lawn to inspect and found out that they were fake and all that stuff. But anyway, we had a big laugh at Betty Caverly's expense. Uh, but the, the whole point is, upon close inspection, they were seen to be fakes. They looked like red geraniums from a distance. They were in the same place as red geraniums. Uh, She had seen those red geraniums in the same spot year after year after year. But upon close inspection, there was no authentic life in them. And that's not hard to apply to the Christian life at all, is it? And it's certainly on on the the mind of the writer of Hebrews. That's part of the topic and so on. In fact, uh, Dr. Young was talking about this very thing last week, wasn't he? Talking about uh, fruit. producing fruit, producing a crop, or being uh, broken off and burned because that's what happens to the dead branches. 
So lots of things, ladies and gentlemen, can have an exterior appearance of faith, but when it comes to a saving faith, a saving faith, a, a faith in a real God, a faith in a real Savior, a faith in a real remedy for evil, a faith for um, real personal culpability uh, for transgression against God, there lies this reality, and please hear it carefully. Uh, this is our main idea today. You're either redeemed or not. There is no in-between. Nor does it float back and forth, ladies and gentlemen. Redeemed or not, there is no in-between. Uh, there is a God-fueled, God-enabled, God-secured, irrevocable, redemptive reality. You're either in the household of faith or you're not. Uh, in other words, when God has set his love upon you and his salvation upon you, it works. Uh, he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. If God has breathed life into you, uh, then you're alive and you're a Christian. And if a person ultimately falls away from the faith, what does that mean? It means they were never a Christian to begin with. That's what that means. There's no in-between. Um, and at the same time, it's a great concern of the writer of Hebrews that we cherish our faith, that we cling to the object of our faith, our Savior, and that we fear in a healthy way the dangers to our faith. There are really dangers. There are really assaults against us by an enemy who hates God. Uh, here's a good quote from um, uh, a writer I was reading. He says, uh, in fact, he, he quotes a verse, and I'm going to turn to it for you. Um, he supports it with a verse. He says, um, while we know that true believers are kept safe by God's power, that's the first half of his quote, but and, and, then, he, and he, then he says in parentheses, First Peter uh, uh, 1, 3 through 5, and I'm going to read it to you. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. I mean, it, it, this is saying, if God has done a work in you, then you are safe in that work, all right? So back to this guy's quote. He says, while we know that true believers are kept safe by God's power, as is, as is supported by the scriptures, um, the Christian life takes place within the context of grave danger. When the New Testament speaks of assurance, it never allows for complacency. That's a good quote, isn't it? Um, we are safe in Christ and the journey is grave. All right, so let's look at um, the first of our three points, inward and outward expression of the same reality. Um, let's look at our passage here, verse uh, nine. It says... Um, Though we speak in this way, in verse 9, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. Well, let's look at the first part of that. Though we speak in this way, what way are they, is he, are they talking about? Well, look back up to verse 4. This is, a, this is the way. For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, and have shared in the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the goodness of the word of God, and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away... 
to restore them again to repentance, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding them up to contempt. Now, uh, as I said last time, that is considered by many to be the most scary statement in all of the scriptures. And I told you last time, too, that John Wesley, not our John Wesley, but the other John Wesley, um, mistakenly thought that this was a way that you could lose your salvation, and this was the, the, the scriptural support for that. But um, really, ladies and gentlemen, uh, this may be a scary statement, but it's no scary, scarier than anything else that God reveals about himself in the scriptures, like he's holy, holy, holy. That could be called the scariest statement in the scripture if you're not holy. Pretty scary. Um, if you look at God's uh, history and his dealings with humanity and, and his, his, um, his utter moral purity and the things he says about himself, I mean, those are all grand things about God, and they're just as, just as imposing as this kind of a statement here. But um, I'll tell you this, ladies and gentlemen, um, everything God reveals about himself in his word um, has, has demands, Everything he reveals about himself in his word tells us about what he's like and what he requires and how we're supposed to respond, what our situation is, why we need rescue, and so on. And, uh, you know, he does it specially in his word, right, to believers who have eyes to see and ears to hear. But he does it just generally, too, to all of creation, doesn't he? You know, when you observe the cosmos and you feel that sense of being overwhelmed, you see something magnificent and you're overwhelmed, that's, that's not just, uh, you know, don't reduce that to um, the, the, the dumbest form, you know, that big, me small. Okay, that's the dumbest observation you can make. That big, me small, it overwhelms me. Yeah, derp. What you're feeling is a sense of the divine. That's what overwhelms you, is that God's thumbprint is on what he's made, and it shows you what he's like. All right, and so what you do with that information is up to you. But especially in his word, God reveals himself in a profound and pointed way. But back to the text here, there are very potent words used in verse four. Um, Those who have been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, who shared in the Holy Spirit, who have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come. You you look at those things and you go, ooh, wow, those are really potent words. Um, What do we do with those things? Uh, in, In case you think that those words necessarily imply salvation. Well, if they shared in the Holy Spirit, oh, it's got to mean they're saved. The writer's ahead of you. The writer is thinking, okay, it's almost like he's going, okay, listen, now that I've said what I've said, now that I've given you another warning because I'm so concerned about you, now that I I want you to not live cavalierly uh, toward holy things, but I want you to take all this stuff very seriously because there's an assault on your faith all the time. But I don't want you to take it the wrong way, so let me say this. And then he says, verse 9, though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, who's he talking to? The Christians he's writing to. He's saying, in your case, beloved, and by the way, he's like getting super pastoral about it too, beloved. I call you that sometimes, beloved. He's saying, in your case, beloved, fellow believers, we feel sure of better things Things that belong to salvation. Is that unclear? I don't think it is. I think it's it's very clear that in one scenario, he's talking about people who never were Christians. And in this scenario, he's talking about people who are Christians. And that, that precisely supports the point. The main idea, you're either redeemed or not. There is no in between. Um. 
So how about these, how about these little uh, scenarios? What about the person who prayed a little prayer when they were seven at Bible camp? And they went down and they, boo-hoo. They prayed a prayer and then they grew up and they never really had another thought about God and they never lived their life considering him in any way. Um, you know, practical atheists. Um, what about them? Well, I would say to you that they were a, a never a saved person to begin with. How about this? Um, what about the person who was very active in church, um, there many years, served God there many years, um, raised a family and a household of covenant faith and so on, and then at 67 years old, that man or woman repudiates their faith, says, you know what, uh, forget it. What about that person? I would say to you that that person was never a Christian to begin with. How about this scenario? Um, oh, and by the way, let me, let me just share with you. This is, this is what Jesus says. He says, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, cast out demons in your name, do my, many mighty works in your name, and then I, Jesus, will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me. Notice Jesus doesn't say, I knew you once, but I don't know you anymore. I knew you once, but you know, your attendance kind of dropped, and so that's not what Jesus says. He says, depart from me. I never knew you. So I would say to that 67-year-old who reputes his or her faith after even a lifetime in church that they were never a Christian to begin with. All right, so here's the last scenario. What about a person who was a worship leader, loved God's law, shepherded God's people, trusted God for great deliverance, but then committed adultery, orchestrated murder, and then was called out uh, and found guilty by a prophet of the Lord. What about that person? You know, I'm referring to David. Yeah. Here's this man after God's own heart is David. What about, what do we do with that guy? Well, the question is, did he repent? Yep. Did he return? Yep. Well, what does that say? It's, it says that he made terrible, sinful errors. Um, he fell very badly. But, it, but is, is David a believer? Of course he is. So that's, that's the whole point. The issue comes down to this, ladies and gentlemen. Um, you're either redeemed or you're not. There's no in-between. Now, how do we know? Well, Matthew 7 would tell us that you will recognize them by their, their fruits, and that echoes what's happening in Hebrews here. Now, let's back up a little bit and look at verse 7. It says, For the land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. Now, think about that. Um, the land has drunk the rain. Um, that's common grace. God causes the rain to fall on the just and the unjust, and uh, he, he replenishes the earth, okay? So you got a land that's drunk the rain uh, that falls on it, produces a crop useful, uh, and receives a blessing from God. So there's one response, right? Producing a crop. The rain falls on it, produces a crop. But there's another one, verse eight. If it bears thorns and thistles, it's worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned, you know, you see, you're either redeemed or you're not. There is no in-between. Now, I want to remind you that um, throughout the whole letter of Hebrews, there's been a scenario in the, the mind of the writer the whole way. 
And we've, we've made reference to it a few times, which is the, the parallel he's making to the wilderness wanderings of the Israelite people. In the wilderness wanderings, um, after the Exodus, Moses leads the people out of Egyptian captivity and they wander around. And there were people who trusted Yahweh and believed in him and believed the promise. And there were people who weren't. They were national uh, Israelites, right? Well, yes. Uh, they were, a, they were a, a people, but there's a difference between just being a, a national people, a gathered people, and a believing people, all right? And so, the parallel is being drawn between them and us, and uh, what's so amazing, ladies and gentlemen, is this, and this is kind of an application. Um, the Israelites um, had, all, had all put blood on their doorposts before the Exodus at Passover. They had all eating the Passover lamb. By the way, if, I don't know if you like lamb or not, but we, that's one thing we know Jesus ate was lamb. That's one thing we know he ate because he ate the Passover lamb and he fulfilled all righteousness. So they put blood on the doorpost. They, he, they ate the Passover lamb. They saw the great exodus from slavery. They followed a great pillar of fire. Um, they uh, drank the water that God supplied, ate the manna that God provided, heard God's voice at Sinai and so on. Uh, but some believed and some didn't believe. The rain fell, just like here, and some produced the crop and some produced thorns and thistles. And, um, you know, that's why theologians call it the visible and invisible church. Did you know that? Those terms, visible and invisible? It's the visible church in that we can look around the room and see each other. I see you in church. I see you gathered with God's people. That's the visible church. But you know what I can't see? The inside of you. I can't see your heart, but God looks on the heart. That's the invisible church. God knows who really are believers um, and who just put blood on the doorpost and ate the Passover lamb and saw the exodus and so on and great pillar of fire, but, you know, didn't really believe. There's no in-between now or back then or ever. You're either redeemed or you're not. No in-between. Um, and, you know, we can relate to that, can't we? Uh, we've seen mighty works of God in our own lives and in other people's lives and so on. We've witnessed um, um, the Holy Spirit's movement in the people of God. We've seen worshipers uh, expressing adoration deeply and so on. Um, In short, ladies and gentlemen, to apply this to you, um, don't even toy with a lazy attitude toward holy things. Don't even toy with it. Don't toy with taking a preacher merely at his word ever. Any preacher. Don't take me at my word. Don't follow some guy. Don't buy a bunch of guys' books. Uh, Don't listen to some person on television and just go, "Mm, that sounds good to me. Don't do that. Don't take a preacher at his word. Test everything against the scriptures. Don't take it from anybody. Don't don't dare do that. Don't toy with it. Uh, How about this? Don't toy with falling out of fellowship with God's people. Don't even toy with it. Don't toy with letting your family fall out of fellowship with God's people. It's not good for you. It's very bad for you. Uh, We live in a grave context. Um, Our faith is always challenged. And don't toy with a cavalier attitude toward the Bible and prayer. And the last uh, point that we need to make on this, this whole sermon point here is this, and really to return to the point itself, inward and outward expression of the same reality. Um, it says um, in verse 9, though we speak in this way, 
Uh, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things. Question is, what are those things? What are the better things? Well, um, it's, widely, it's widely written on the, the fact that there are inward and outward um, expressions of the same reality, of th- those things, okay? So um, distinctly Christian, if you, if you would turn to, uh, go left to Romans uh, chapter 8. Um, chapter 8, verse 9, Romans 8, verse 9. It says, you, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. That's with a capital S. That's a reference to the person of the Holy Spirit. You are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. In fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you. Now, question. Um, that's mysterious, that the Spirit of God dwells in you. That is mysterious, isn't it? That's a pretty hard thing to explain to Bob in accounting. Um, oh, God dwells in me. What? Are you insane? All right, but my question to you is, Christian, do you get that? Do you, I mean, when, when, you, when you read the Spirit of God dwells in you, it's mysterious, it's true. But does your soul rumble with that truth? If you're a Christian, I bet it does. It does. Um, Look at verse 14. All who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. That's an internal expression of a reality. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Now, that's mysterious, true, right? That God dwells in you, the Holy Spirit of God dwells in you, but Christian, doesn't that resonate in your soul? Well, that is an inward expression of a reality. Um, That's something that God shows you in a profound way. That's the Holy Ghost's assurance for your soul. You know, guys, uh, uh, are the Morgans in here, Tim and Sharon? No? Okay, well, let me make fun of them. Um, They got a dog. You know, this is not the first time they, they saw a dog and they went, oh, we have two dogs already, but one's about to croak, and that's a cute dog, and now let's get another dog. So they get another dog. Um, so they got this dog, and they named it Piper, and uh, Piper like doubled in size about every four minutes. Um, and, and that makes a huge difference in your yard and everything like that, too. And so, and then, you know, Sharon's mom was sick, and Tim's mom was sick, and she then passed away, and uh, so they ended up giving that dog away. And so my question to you is, have, have you ever done that? Uh, who in here has gotten a dog like sometime in their lifetime, and then uh, a little bit while later they had to give the dog away? Who's done that before? I knew it, see? That's a lot of people. I knew it was going to be a high number. See, I, I, I thought the Morgans would be encouraged by that, but we did too. Growing up, we had a little dog named Midnight, and uh, it was a black Cocker Spaniel, and uh, we got Midnight, and uh, I think I was like 11 years old, and so it was 11, 9, and 7, and uh, th- that dog was just added mayhem to the house, and three weeks later, we had to have it killed, but uh, no, we, g- we gave it away. <laughs> we, we drove it to Car Kelsey's, and... Uh, he wasn't even born. Uh, but, uh, but the point is, uh, 
the Morgan's dog, Piper, was only a visitor. <laughs> uh, never brought into the family, you know? Totally different kind of a situation. You know, if you've ever dog sat for somebody, they come in your house, they're eating things, and you take care of them and stuff like that, but they're never part of the family. And you're not even crazy about them on the furniture and stuff with their hair and their gross other people germs and stuff, you know? Uh, they're not a part of the family. But my, my, my point is, ladies and gentlemen, um, the Holy Spirit testifies to your spirit that you're a part of God's family. God speaks in familiar terms, sons, daughters, brothers, sisters. Those things are, are realities that Christians feel deeply and inwardly. Those are, those are assurances by God, by the presence of his spirit, all right? Let's look at the other one, outward expression of the same reality. You got an inward expression, you got an outward expression. Um, um, to discover outward expressions of inward realities, in other words, um, w- what you are on the inside will show up on the outside. Um, uh, if I ask you a question, uh, 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 let me put it to you this way. If I ask you a question about the Sermon on the Mount, so Jesus preaches in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. It's a Sermon on the Mount. And uh, what's his sermon topic? What would you say? Just kind of off the top of your head. I mean, there's a lot in the Sermon on the Mount. You could do a two-year series on it if you wanted to. But, but what, uh, Jesus preached a sermon. What was the sermon topic? What would you say? What is it? Uh, that's a good answer. Kingdom of heaven. I would agree with that. Um, who, who could offer another one? What is it? Practical what? Life. Well, that's awesome. Practical life. Yeah, I like it. Um, I would summarize it this way. And I, and I would say that all three of these answers gel. Um, I would say heart righteousness. Um, Jesus is constantly uh, basically saying uh, God looks on the heart. You know, this exterior thing, uh, God sees past the veneer, you know. He, he zeroes in all the way to the heart. And basically, um, he's not come to abolish the law. He's come to not reinterpret the law. He's not come to take the law to a new level. I hate when preachers say that. Jesus really took the law to a new level. No, he did not. He told us what it meant all along. God requires heart righteousness. God looks on the heart. You got an inward expression, but it shows up on the outside. That's the, that's the order. You don't do and do and do and do, and it changes the inside. No, it's the other way around. God makes a change on the inside. It shows up on the outside. And so um, I think that's, that's the point. God doesn't want, he's not impressed with a thick slathering of makeup. He's not impressed with a facade of earthly accomplishments and things. He looks on the heart. He wants a heart that loves him and moves him to the highest priority in life over all things. That's what God wants. Um, So inward and outward expressions of the same reality. All right, our next point, uh, God sees and cares. That's a lovely idea. We'll spend the least amount of time on it today, but... um, it's really not that hard to understand that God uh, sees and cares. Um, and I don't want it to rise to uh, improper uh, prominence in the passage. It, it, it's easy to do that. But look at verse 10. God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. As I say, you could take that, a preacher could go, oh, I'm really going to get him today. I'm going to make him sweat. 
I'm going to make them sweat in their seats and say, oh, God, uh, it's not unjust. He, uh, he sees what you're doing there. He sees what you're doing. You better do a good job. That, now, you could make a sermon out of that. You would be uh, vandalizing the passage, however. Um, I think what that is simply saying and what, what the writer's saying to the people is this. Um, God sees and cares. Uh, yeah, it's, um, it's uh, a tough life, and it was a tough for these people. They were a persecuted people. Uh, their faith was under pressure, and man, it was under a real pressure too. I mean, you could, um, you could slip back into Judaism. You could say, oh, Jesus Christ and him crucified, Jesus Christ and nothing else, and then kind of go, ah, well, just a couple things. This tradition... Uh, and what this rabbi says, and uh, circumcision, and uh, you know, throw in a few law-following uh, things, and uh, you can, you could, you could easily re- revert back to it, and still probably look fairly religious. There's a warning against that, though, friends. Um, I think what this is simply saying is that God has not left you alone. God has not stopped His steady and careful care of you. God has not overlooked your worshipful and humble service to him. God is paying attention to you. He, he sees the fruit that's taking place in your life. I mean, uh, most of Christian ministry, as a vocational minister, most of Christian ministry, and listen, um, I have a visible job. I'm visible right now. I'm visible out there. That's still a small percentage of Christian ministry, and in your own lives. I mean, isn't so much of what you do for the kingdom, hidden. And that includes your family. I mean, the gospel things you do with your children's um, spiritual health in mind, those are often not seen and never seen. Many things are never seen, only known by God. And God is saying, I see them. I see and I care. Um, God is in it with you, and more than that, he is your life itself, and there's no more encouraging thing for a human heart to ponder. Uh, Last point is diligence to the end. And if you look at verse 11, it says, um, and we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness, to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Now that word sluggish is, uh, is uh, in the same family words that you would see in verse 11. Uh, when he says about this, we have much to say and it's hard to explain since you become dull of hearing. Sluggishness, dullness, same thing. And so he's saying, don't be sluggish. Um, you know, you're either redeemed or you're not redeemed. That, there's no in between. Um, but um, what's the big deal uh, in, in the mind of the um, writer of Hebrews? I think it might be this, ladies and gentlemen. Um, have you ever struggled with assurance of your faith? Lord, am I really a Christian? I mean, if I really am a Christian, how could I have thought the thing that I thought or said the thing that I said to the person I said it to? Um, I told you this years ago that about 15 years ago, our staff read a book um, uh, for a staff retreat, which is basically a meeting, a long meeting. Um, but we read this book, Richard Baxter, the reform pastor. And uh, like half the staff was like, uh, you know, it was like, oh, book discussion time. Uh, what are your observations? And half of our st- church staff was going, I, I don't even know if I'm a Christian <laughs> after reading this book. 
I mean, it was just so convicting. Um, you ever struggle with assurance? Um, I bet a lot, of, a lot of you have, and you know how traumatizing that is. And I, if you haven't struggled with assurance, then I might even wonder about your health a little bit. But uh, would you turn to Romans 7? We're in the home stretch here. Romans 7. Here's the Apostle Paul, ladies and gentlemen. Romans 7, verse 15. This is, this is a guy who God um, strenuously saved and strenuously used and used to write much of the New Testament. Take the gospel to the Gentiles. I mean, this is a guy who says, imitate me as I imitate Christ. Here's what he says. I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Isn't that like you? I want to obey. Why do I sin? Why do I do the thing I hate? Uh, Look at verse 19. I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. Um, uh, uh, Skip down to verse, uh, oh, look at verse 22. I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind, making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will rescue me from this body of death? Well, he's got the answer. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. Notice the pastoral tenderness that he has there and the pastoral tenderness of the, the, the writer of Hebrews. He says, we desire each one of you, in verse 11, to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end. He wants you to be sure he wants you to be safe in the Lord Jesus. He really does care that, that Christians feel like they're okay because they are okay. But then he gives the how-to. Verse 12, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. In other words, um, ultimately, um, imitate Christ, ladies and gentlemen, with diligence and not laziness. We are not to be lazy about our faith. We're not to be sluggish. We're not to be dull. The result is that you feel then assurance. God wants you to feel assurance. And the way you feel assurance is by obeying him. The way you feel assurance is by utilizing the means of grace he puts in your life. You want that? So does God. All right, last thing, and we'll close with this. Um, I'm on all these wacky, wacky mailing lists. You would not believe. Um, the, I get a choir robe magazine. I get a communion cups magazine. I get a banners magazine with the glitzy stuff. I get, uh, you know, boxes and uh, packing tape magazines and just magazines galore. And I get these worship things all the time. I mean, every week there's a, something on my voicemail. We're with the singing boys club of Zimbabwe and we'd love to do a concert at your church. I get that kind of stuff all the time and then I get mailers all the time and uh, worship mailers and, and stuff about worship conferences and new laser lights and all. you just can't believe the stuff I get. It's, it's amazing the, the industry that's around the Christian church. It's unbelievable. But one of them was this, uh, this magazine that had this ad in it and I, I took a screenshot of it somewhere. I couldn't find it. But it's this ad and it's this guy who's like, Oh, yeah. 
I sing it on a Sure Beta 57 microphone. Oh, yeah. Tattoo, Asian symbols. I don't know what they mean, but look how cool I am, you know. Tattoo, oh. And it said, the caption, it just infuriated me. Devotion measured in decibels. I'm like, you know, I don't think that's how God does it. <laughs> I don't think that's how God measures devotion by the loudness, by the guy who turns the knob up. God measures it internally, ladies and gentlemen. And the gospel message is simple and beautiful and full of assurance and hope. You've got a big problem. You've got a cosmic problem. You've got a forever problem. If God is holy, 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 if he's perfect, if he's burning in white-hot purity and you're not burning in white-hot purity, if you transgress his law in the least, well, that's like a staph infection in your elbow. Just a little bit infects. That's a sin problem. That's a, that's a forever problem if this God is infinitely holy as he says he is. But the, the beautiful thing about the gospel is he gives you exactly what you need. You need perfect righteousness. You need divine righteousness. You need the righteousness of God, and it's supplied in Jesus Christ in his own divine righteousness. And he came to be like us as a human being, not as some kind of example, not as some kind of hologram, not as somebody going through some gymnastics for some little equation, but he really lived a human life that was sinless. And so he lays down his life. You believe in him, and that divine righteousness is reckoned to your account so that God looks at you and he says, clean. Is that not hopeful? That's where you find your assurance, ladies and gentlemen. There's an inward expression of that, that God says, you're mine and Christ has paid for your sin. And then it shows up on the outside. And the warning of this writer is that we live like it lest we lose our assurance. Let's pray. Our Father, we're grateful that you love us and that you've loved us with an everlasting love and that the work you started, you will surely complete. My prayer is that you would not let us become sluggish and dim but that we would be vigilant, that we would be disciplined in our faith and disciplined in the um, enjoyment of the means of grace that you've supplied. Might you do that in our souls, steady us, encourage us, and protect us from the onslaught of the enemy who is so very real. And we pray all these things in Jesus and for his glory. Amen.